0: We are going to be continuing our series through the book of John. Uh, this morning we're going to be in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. So if you got your Bibles with you, uh, you can go ahead and start turning over to, to John. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's one of the four Gospels uh, that accounts the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We uh, just started four weeks ago, for those of you who uh, maybe uh, visiting or newer, uh, just started four weeks ago to a journey of walking through the book of John, which we'll be doing, Lord willing, for uh, the next few months, uh, probably really probably for the next year, uh, just slowly walking through John. So we're excited about that. Um, so John 1, 14 to 18 is where we'll be today. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the words will also be on the screen right here behind us. So I'm gonna go ahead and read. This is the word of God. was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known let me pray God I thank you so much for your word Jesus, we praise you because you are full of grace and truth. And the only reason that we are able to gather together this morning in your presence, the only reason that we have eternal life, the only reason that we can sing to you and know you is because the word became flesh and dwelt among us and died for us, rose from the dead so that we might be reconciled to God by faith, and we worship you this morning in response, God. I pray that this morning you would open our eyes to your glorious grace, that, we, that every single person here in this room would truly see and understand just how marvelous and glorious and great your grace is. Uh, and, and God, I, I pray that it, as our eyes are open to see that, that our hearts would sing praise back to you, that we would just be in awe of you, God. Lord, help me as I preach. I am weak. You know I'm weak. You know, God, that there's nothing that I have to offer anybody in this room. This is all you, God. So I pray that you would work through my weakness. I pray that your word would change and transform hearts, God. And God, I pray that you would strengthen me by your grace. As we just sang earlier, your grace is enough. So we need it this morning, God. We need it to be able to listen and to hear and understand. And I need it to be able to teach. So I pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. Amen. So in John chapter 1, verse 14, right here, we get a bombshell dropped on us. In verse 14, we read a stunning sentence. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. A few weeks ago in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, when we started this series, we learned that the Word is Jesus, and that Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity. one God in three persons. And so what John is essentially saying here in verses 14 to 18 is that God became a man and dwelt among us, and what we have learned about him as he came and dwelt among us is that he is full of grace and truth. God became a man and dwelt among us, and he is full of grace and truth. Now those are two pretty massive statements. I mean, God becoming a man and dwelling among us could occupy a ton of our time alone. But He also demonstrated that He's full of grace. And so this morning, we're going to spend time meditating on those two statements, on why they matter, and on what they mean for you. Now, when it it comes to thinking about the incredible reality that God became a man and dwelt among us, there's two very important doctrines within that right here in verse 14 that I want to unpack. Uh, the, those doctrines are the incarnation and something called the hypostatic union. I know those sound like big fancy theological terms and guess it's because they are, um, but I want to unpack them for you. So uh, John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is called the incarnation. That word comes from Latin, the, the Latin words in, incarnus, which literally means in the flesh. Okay, that's, that's what incarnation means. Uh, Stephen Wellam, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says, incarnation is the term that refers to the supernatural act of the triune God, whereby the eternal divine son took into union with himself a complete Human nature apart from sin. So the incarnation is the doctrine that God took on flesh. He became a man, but he did not cease to be God. And he lived and dwelt among us as a man. The term there, when we read he dwelt among us, that Greek word literally means he pitched his tent among us. Like He set up camp. He came and moved in to our neighborhood. The word harkens back to the Old Testament where the Lord dwelt in the midst of His people, Israel, in the tabernacle. The Lord's presence was in the tabernacle uh, as Israel wandered through the wilderness and then later on King Solomon built a more permanent structure and the Lord's presence dwelt in the temple. The point is that in Jesus... God has come to dwell amongst his people in a much more personal way. He has come in the flesh. In, uh, in the next chapter, in John chapter 2, uh, verse 19, Jesus is disputing with the Pharisees. And at one point he says to them, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he's standing in the temple, the Jewish temple, the building structure. But John lets us in on a little secret there. He says Jesus wasn't referring to the temple structure. He was referring to his body, right? And so so the glory of God's presence now has a body, dwells in the body, in the person of Jesus Christ, no longer in a building. That's why Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 says that in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. I wish I had time to go into the thread of of God's manifest presence all throughout Scripture. It's, a, it's, it's amazing. From Genesis to Revelation, and maybe, Lord willing, uh, at some point I'll have time to do an entire sermon on that. Uh, but the point is, and what, what I want you to, to understand here, is that the incarnation means that God became a man, Jesus fully God and fully man. Now, this is a, this is a stark contrast to every other religion on the earth. Every religion or worldview in one form or another teaches that we need to work our way to God that, or, or we need to work our way to the divine, that there's something we need to do to be able to attain godliness. But the Bible teaches that we can't work our way to God because God is perfectly holy and we've already fallen short. So God came to us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And when Jesus came, He was fully God and fully man. That's, that's what's called the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is just a fancy theological term that simply means that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Not 50-50. He's not like half God, half man. He's not, he doesn't go back and forth from being God and man like Clark Kent and Superman when he jumps into the phone booth and, you know, go, I'm going to go be God for a little bit, and then he goes back and becomes Clark Kent again. No, no, no. Jesus is always 100, 100% God, always 100% man, without interruption and without limits. Here's, here's a really helpful way to think about this, okay? It's important to understand that when the Word became flesh, it was not in, in a subtraction, But an addition. When the word became flesh, it was not a subtraction, but an addition. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. I'm going to read this passage to you because I think it's very helpful uh, to understand this. Paul says this He says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, you may have at some point heard somebody say something along the lines of, Jesus laid aside his deity and came to earth. Anybody ever heard something like that? Jesus set aside his deity? And oftentimes people will say that, and they'll assume that there's a verse in Philippians 2 that says that Jesus set aside his deity. Did you know that that's not in the Bible? Jesus did not lay aside his deity. Jesus did not stop being God. He didn't set aside his deity. What what does the word say here? It says that Jesus humbled himself by taking on flesh, not by putting off his deity. All right? That's why Jesus humbled himself. And and why does this matter? I mean, is this just stuff that, that pastors should know? Absolutely not. For starters, this is fundamental to the very gospel itself. If we lose the deity or the humanity of Jesus, then we lose the gospel. Why, let's think about why. Why is the humanity of Jesus necessary? Why is it necessary that Jesus was fully man? <clears throat> well, only as a man could Jesus fulfill the law on our behalf. Jesus, as a man, perfectly fulfilled the law of God that we have all failed to obey. He never sinned. He perfectly kept the law of God. Not only that, but it was only as a man with a flesh and bones body that Jesus could die to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin as the substitute sacrifice. He needed a body to be able to have hands and feet for the nails to be driven through. He needed a body to have a head for the crown of thorns to be pressed into. He needed a body to have a back for the whip to crack over. Our sin separated us from God. And the only way for us to be reconciled to God is for that sin to be removed. We needed someone to pay our debt in our place. And that is what Jesus came to do. It is why Jesus must be fully man, lest He would not be able to die on our behalf. See, God is holy and just, so he can't just look at the other way at sin. God can't just decide, oh, that's fine, I'll just let it slide this time. Then God would not be a perfectly holy and just judge. Because of that, Jesus, the innocent one, died in our place so that God could extend mercy to undeserving sinners. That's why Jesus had to be a man, and so to deny Jesus' humanity is to lose the gospel itself. And if you think, like, I've never heard of anybody trying to deny Jesus' humanity, friends, it's been going on throughout church history. Ever since, I mean, even in uh, the book of First John, uh, John actually writes and warns the church there in uh, the New Testament about a heresy going around denying that Jesus came in the flesh. Uh, so, I mean, it started right at the very beginning in the first century, all the way, you know, uh, heresies like Docetism and Gnosticism. And, uh, you know, even today, uh, religions like uh, Islam will deny that Jesus actually died in the flesh, that he actually denied on the cross. Jesus' humanity is good news, not just because he died on our behalf, though, But also because as a man, only as a man could Jesus be our faithful high priest who represents us and who has endured the same sufferings and temptations that you and I have faced. So because Jesus is fully man, it means there's never a time where you can say that God doesn't know how I feel or what I'm going through. Because Jesus has endured all the same sufferings and all the same temptations that we have, yet without sin. Jesus is fully man, but also Jesus is fully God. So let's think about for a moment, why is it necessary that Jesus be fully God? Well, only a holy God could be a sufficient sacrifice to cover the sins of the world. The book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats as sacrifices are not sufficient to atone for our sin against an infinitely holy God. We need an infinitely perfect sacrifice, an unblemished Lamb of God. That's why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And not only that, but only God could overcome death in the grave. There have been many men who have laid their lives down to save the life of another in the history of the world. But only one laid his life down for his enemies and then raised himself from the dead three days later. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he's matchless in all of creation. There's never been and there will never be anyone like the God man, Jesus Christ. Shai Lin is a, a Christian hip hop artist and, and also a church planner and pastor. And he, he did a song. Uh, He's got some really uh, amazing music where he basically teaches theology through hip-hop music. And there's a song that he did called The Hypostatic Union. And in one of the lines of the song, I'm not going to rap it for you. I'm just going to read it. I know you all want me to rap, but sorry, not today. He says, see, only a human can substitute for human lives, but only God can take the wrath of God and survive. There are so many more reasons we could list for why the deity of Jesus is necessary. Like, only God can forgive sins. Only as God could Jesus send the Spirit to indwell believers. Only as God could Jesus return as King of kings to judge the earth, to destroy evil, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth. It's so important for us to understand the nature of Jesus, to, to understand even... Doctrines like the hypostatic union that seem like you know airy-fairy theological stuff that's not really practical, but when we really get down into it, it's it's very practical because the gospel hinges upon it. So, as believers, as Christians, you have a responsibility to steward that gospel. This isn't just the job of, of pastors. As, as Paul told Timothy, we are to guard the good deposit entrusted to us. And while Yes, Paul was writing to Timothy, and Timothy was helping to shepherd and pastor a congregation, and and that is especially true for elders and leaders. It does apply to all Christians. Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. You've been entrusted with the treasure of the gospel. And our theology, including our Christology, has a bearing on our lives. So this is why it's important for us to not only read Scripture faithfully, but to read Scripture carefully and in community with other believers. God has given us His Word and He has given us the church to keep us from being led astray after false teachings and false doctrines. So if, if you're not reading Scripture with other believers, if you're not in community and in discipleship with other believers, I want to encourage you to make it a habit of reading and studying God's Word carefully with other Christians. There's plenty of ways that you can do that here at Pillar DC. You can get into a discipleship relationship if you're not yet. We, we encourage everybody to, have, uh, to get into a, a one-on-one or a one-on-two discipleship relationship. If you have questions about that, come and talk to us afterwards or or indicate on the Connect card. Uh, If if you're a guy, we've got a men's Bible study on the fourth Saturday. So this coming Saturday, we've got men's Bible study. So you can come and gather with a group of men and eat breakfast, study the Word of God. For the ladies, we've got... I think four different, right? Four different ladies' small groups throughout the week, right now, and the women are walking deep, doing a deep dive through the Book of John uh, in conjunction with our sermon series. So you can gather with other ladies and you can study the Word with other Christians. But whatever it looks like, I want to encourage you to do that. It's so important, so important. All right. So we've talked about we've talked about how the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We talked about the necessity of Jesus' humanity and His deity. But John also says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So if God has come to us, then what do we learn about Him? What does it mean that He's full of grace and truth? The glory of God, that, that word there that He uses when He says, we have seen His glory, The glory of God is the presence of God. It's what radiates or emanates from him. The glory of God is seen in the Old Testament in the presence of God descending upon the tabernacle or invading the temple. So like when when Moses wants to know God and wants to see him, he asks him, he says, Show me your glory. And God's response to Moses, he says, I will make my glory pass by you, meaning his very self, his very presence. So when we talk about the glory of God, we're primarily talking about the presence of God. It's the very essence of who God is. And what is it that the Lord reveals about himself to Moses when he passes by him? You guys remember what the Lord says? Exodus 34, 6 and 7. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. What does he reveal to Moses there? He reveals that he's full of grace and truth. He re- when, when his glory passes by Moses, God is revealing to Moses who he is, his very essence. In fact, in, in John chapter 1 here, when John in verse 17 alludes to the law being given through Moses, it's very clear that he's drawing a parallel here with Exodus chapter 34. Jesus, being full of grace and truth, is the manifestation of the steadfast love and faithfulness of God. So, in other words, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the God who revealed himself in part to Moses at Mount Sinai and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that God took on flesh and dwelt among us. If abounding, if steadfast love and faithfulness could take on flesh and grow legs and walk around, it would look like Jesus Christ, because He did. Jesus is the manifestation of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. And it's, it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God most fully demonstrates His steadfast love and His covenant faithfulness. And, and clearly, the passage that we're in this morning, the, the, the emphasis in this passage is on grace. Four times in these five verses, the word grace is used. In fact, in verse 16, John says that in Jesus we have received grace upon grace. Like, I think if John were like a, were like a you know, modern day you know, cool person, he'd say, We've received stacks on stacks of grace. Like, that's what I imagine John saying. Stacks on stacks of grace. <laughs> I made myself laugh with that too much when I was preparing the sermon this week. But here's the deal. Seriously, though. I really want you to see and understand the implications of the connection between God's glory and God's grace here. Okay, Because this radically reorients the way that we see God and Scripture. All right, so God wants to be glorified. He wants to make his glory known because he is God and He's worthy of the praise of all peoples. And God's glory is what, what John chapter 1 is teaching. This is astounding. God's glory is best known by giving grace upon grace to undeserving sinners. So as God extends more grace, thanksgiving to God abounds. 2 Corinthians 4.15 puts it like this. Paul says, "So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. What to the glory of God? So the more grace gets poured out on people, the more glory God gets. Do you guys see that important connection? So what? What does this mean practically and tangibly for us? This is the part of the sermon I'm fired up about. Let's go. We're about to get into it. God is not reluctant to extend grace." He delights in extending grace. He delights to extend more and more grace because it makes His glory shine more and more. You see, grace is not something that God has a limited reserve of that He has to muster up. It's not a thing that God dispenses. That's Roman Catholic theology. That's not what we believe. God is not like a man. He's not like us. He has an unlimited supply of grace. He is grace. It's the very essence of who God is. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. The Apostle Paul writes this to the church in Ephesus. He says, In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Why did God choose us from the, for the foundation of the world to set His love on us, to adopt us into His family, to extend mercy on us? To the praise of His glorious grace. In fact, three more times in chapter 1, Paul is going to use the phrase in Ephesians 1, to the praise of His glory. Jesus came to die on the cross for us so that in his death and resurrection, God could reconcile sinners like you and me and pour out grace upon us for the rest of eternity. And in doing so, we would pour out praise back to him. Let me outline three gifts. There's many more than three, but three gifts that God's grace abundantly provides for us just to help us kind of wrap our hands around this and what this really means tangibly for your life, okay? First of all, God's grace abundantly provides pardon. Abundantly provides pardon. God is most glorified in his gracious rescuing and redeeming of sinners. Uh, And I pray that this concept is an absolute game changer for many of you this morning. See, Many, many Christians live with the subtle notion in the back of their minds that to glorify God means to be afflicted. It means that we need to suffer. Um, we were talking, uh, Jen was reminding me, uh, what was the name of that guy? That, that, uh, the Bene- Benedict, right? Uh, the monk. Uh, there was a, 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 a Roman Catholic Benedict, what is it? Benedict of Nursia, yeah. Benedict of Nursia. One of the things that he would do is, uh, is whenever uh, he would uh, look at a woman with lust, is he would run through briars and thorns. After he had done so to punish himself, like with no clothes on, he'd like run through briars and thorns, or he would whip himself on the back with, uh, with a whip and things like that. Almost like put himself through punishment. And we, you know, we hear that and we go, "That's crazy. Like that's, that dude's lost his mind." And probably he did a little bit. But here's the deal, guys. Oftentimes, we can be tempted to do similar things, right? Like when we, when we sin or we feel like we're falling short, we feel like, well, I, I deserve to be punished. Like there, I don't deserve to have God's grace in my life right now. There's no way I can pray to God. There's no way I can be around other Christians right now. I need to spend some time and time out or I need to suffer a little bit for what I've done. For many Christians... They live with the subtle notion that that glorifying God means to be somber and dutiful and religious. And when you mess up, you need to make sure and pay your penance. And we're so prone to think that that's what honors God, that God is honored somehow by our afflicting ourselves. But what John chapter 1 is teaching us is that this does not honor God at all. What honors God and makes God look great is His never-ending stream of mercy and grace that He pours out on undeserving sinners. God does not extend grace because He thinks that you are so valuable or awesome. He does not extend grace because you deserve it. He extends grace because it's as natural for God to be gracious as it is for an apple tree to grow apples or for the sun to rise each morning. We're not surprised when the sun rises each morning or when an apple tree grows apples because it's in their nature to do so. Similarly, it's God's very nature to be gracious, to bestow kindness, to extend steadfast love and faithfulness by keeping His promise of what He said He will do. And we know that this is God's nature because it was manifested in Jesus' life and death. John says we have seen His glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus, God in the flesh, He he ate with tax collectors and prostitutes. He touched lepers and healed them. He wept over the hard-heartedness of man. He forgave and prayed for those who crucified Him on the cross while He hung there. Friends, do you see? That is who God is. What you see in Jesus is that that's who God is. So if you want to be right with God, if you want to please God, then confess that you are a sinner in need of grace and drink deeply of it. Believe that Jesus is God, that He died for you, that He's resurrected and seated on the throne. That's all you must do to be saved. That's why the gospel is called good news. It's completely undeserved. It's the greatest form of win-win that's ever existed. God gets the glory and we get the grace. And the more grace we get, the more glory God gets. That's that's what Paul meant in Romans 5.21 when he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Because the more we sin the greater it makes God's grace in forgiving and pardoning us look. And the the more grace that God pours out, the more glory that God gets. If If you are a Christian worried that you've undone God's grace, be assured that God's grace is sufficient not just for the start, but for the completion of your salvation. This is the second... Uh, gift that God's grace abundantly provides. God's grace abundantly provides preservation. He abundantly provides preservation. Just as God delighted to save you initially, he delights to keep you saved. There's a man named William Cooper. He was uh, a hymn writer and and a minister. He wrote hymns like there is a fountain filled with blood. He wrote some amazing hymns and Uh, loved the Lord, but he also was afflicted all of his life with severe depression and anxiety, uh, doubts of his salvation. Uh, He he attempted suicide a couple of times. He was uh, greatly afflicted by uh, depression. Um, he, he, uh, He was a good friend of John Newton. John Newton was the man who wrote the song, Amazing Grace. And Newton uh, journaled uh, about how he often would console uh, William Cooper uh, and attempt to reassure him of God's grace in the gospel at times. And uh, in one of the, one of the uh, lines in Amazing Grace, the song that Newton wrote, and, I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm sure that John Newton spoke with William Cooper about uh, this line in this song. But he said this in Amazing Grace, says, Through many dangers, toils, and snares. We have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. again, guys, God's grace is not in limited supply. He's glorified in continuing to pour out grace on his people who don't deserve it. And not only that but he is just to continue pouring out grace on us. First John 1 eight9 says that when we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that it's, it's right for God to forgive us of our sin. It is just and righteous for Him to do so, even though you continue to sin because Jesus has already paid your debt. Colossians 2.14 says that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside nailing it to the cross. He who knew no sin became sin. Your sin was nailed to the cross when Jesus died, if you've trusted in Him. The implications of this are really astonishing. What this quite literally means is that all of your sin, past, present, and future, if you're a Christian, has already been judged if you've trusted in Jesus. Jesus. Which means that any sin you will commit today or in the future only enhances the glorious grace and mercy of God. It simply makes God look more gracious and more radically merciful. So the very thing that you think should cast you from God's presence only draws you nearer. This might even almost make some of you uncomfortable. Like it sounds scandalous, doesn't it? How is it that our, our sin could only cause the glory of God's grace to shine even brighter? How, how is it that me as a believer that, that I could sin and, and it would only cause God to draw me near and not push me away like it feels like? There's a reason it's called good news. And again, the reason is because your sin debt has been paid all of it, even the sin you're going to commit tomorrow. Now, does this the, the, the natural question here is, does this not open the door for abuses of God's grace? I mean, does this mean that we can just sin as much as we want and we have a go to heaven for free card? No, it does not. Because God's grace abundantly provides power to us as well. That's the third gift that God's grace provides. God's grace abundantly provides power. The Apostle Paul anticipated this problem in Romans chapter 6 after he finished saying, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Okay, that's true. And we should celebrate it and be in awe. And honestly, it should cause us to just fall on the floor weeping for joy because it's absolutely astounding. You are so secure, you don't even realize it. Like, but in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this. He says, so what shall we say then? Does that mean that we should continue in sin so that grace may abound? Should I just go sin on purpose? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, God's grace fundamentally makes us new as we learned last week when we were talking about being born again. It doesn't make us perfect, but it creates in us a new heart and a new spirit. One that fears the Lord, desires His desires, flees from sin and looks to God for refuge. A heart that has truly received the grace of God does not want to continue sinning willfully against God. The the hymn, Come Thou Fount, there's a line in... The the hymn that says, streams of mercy never ceasing call for songs of loudest praise. God's streams of never ceasing mercy ought to evoke in us not a desire to go and partake in as much sin as possible, but rather ought to result in songs of loudest praise back to God. The natural outflow of a life touched by God's grace is love for God in obeying His commands and love for other people. God's grace empowers us to live new lives, not for ourselves, but lives that image the grace and truth of Jesus. And we're able to do this because we have the Spirit of Jesus dwelling within us. So... If you find yourself being harsh with others, judgmental or critical of other people, impatient with others, harboring unforgiveness towards others, and it's a telltale sign that you're taking your eyes off of the grace of God. When our hearts are hardened, bitter, angry, we're not swimming in the waters of God's grace. Grace always softens our hearts. So what should you do when you find yourself being critical or bitter or impatient? You should recall the incalculable grace that God has poured out on you and let it soften your heart toward other people. Humble yourself, confess your sinful attitude to God and to the person that you've wronged. And there may be somebody that you need to forgive this morning. Or maybe there's someone that you need to seek forgiveness from. One of the greatest ways to glorify God is to extend Christ-like grace towards one another. What better application to the sermon this morning could there be than to make peace with and reconcile with another believer? Or maybe somebody in your family. If God's grace is evident anywhere, it should be evident in the church. Amen? Amen. I mean, people, when they come in and they observe Christians relating to one another, when they come into the church, they should observe us treating one another like this. Extending this type of grace towards one another so that they're not just hearing about it from a sermon, from, from my lips. They're not just hearing about it, but they're seeing it in action in our relationships. This is one of the reasons we, you should be inviting people into your home. Like, if you've got neighbors or coworkers that don't know the Lord, like, invite them over to your house for dinner. Invite them to come hang out with you and other Christian friends so that they can watch the way, husband, that you love your wife. So that they can watch the way, fathers and mothers, that you care for your children and discipline your children and all this things. So that they can watch the way that you deal with conflict or the way that you treat strangers out in public. Like, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's let this grace that we have so abundantly received from Jesus Christ transform our hearts and pour out onto others around us. Uh, there may be maybe somebody in your family this morning that you need to go to and reconcile with. The home can be the hardest place to practice extending grace because the relationships are so close. Lots of emotion involved. But it's such an opportunity to be a light. And like of all the people that you want to see and experience the grace of God, don't you want that most for your family members? And don't you want that for your mom, your dad, or brothers, sisters, your spouse, children? What an opportunity we have to be a light. And I can promise you that extending grace in the home makes for a much healthier, happier home. You may have a little bit of wounded pride at first when you have to admit that you were wrong, when you have to kind of, you know, be the first one to make the first move and to go and to reconcile and go, okay, I own my part. I know I've been wrong here. But what a demonstration of grace it will be in a picture of the gospel it will be for the person that you've gone to. So this morning, we've seen in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18, the incredible truth that God has made himself known to us. He came and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. But it's even better, because not only did Jesus become flesh and dwell among us, but he's full of grace. We learn that he's full of grace. Grace is what most naturally radiates from God in response to our sin. And that's possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. So we're going to respond this morning to the message by taking the Lord's Supper together. I'm going to ask Pastor Thomas to come up. Uh, Pastor Thomas is going to come up and he's going to lead us this morning uh, through taking the Lord's Supper together. Uh, And I'm going to ask uh, Pastor Orion, Orion, and he's going to be over here in a moment. Thomas is going to give instructions. Let me pray. Uh, real quick before Thomas comes up. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you so much for the gospel. We thank you for your grace. And I pray now, Lord, as we, as we remember the body broken, the body of Jesus broken for us and the blood of Jesus spilled for us as we take the Lord's Supper, may we meditate on your glorious grace. May your glorious grace just cause praise to rise up in our hearts as we think about the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.